0: Positioning and changing the industry is not about understanding the numbers after to 2025. It's about fundamentally understanding what changes in the industry.
1: Welcome to the first episode of the EdTap podcast, where industry professionals give insight in the digital transformation of the maritime and logistics sector. My name is Sven Goijwaerts and I'm a documentation specialist for one of the largest container carriers. With us today is Lars Jensen, former chief analyst for Klein in 2001 and now CEO of Sea Intelligence Consulting. Last month he published the book Liner Shipping 2025, How to Survive and Thrive. We talk about the book and how it came about. Welcome Lars. Thank you. How are you today? Good, relaxed, it's a nice calm Sunday here in Copenhagen. Yes it is, we are here at the Strandboulevarden. Can you tell us something about the place where you work from? Why have you chosen to be based here? And are you often abroad when you're working?
0: Well, I'm basically based here because this is where I've been living for the past 25 years in Copenhagen but I don't really feel rooted in Copenhagen as much. Uh, Usually I have 80 to 100 travel days a year where I go abroad and work with Container shipping lines, ports, terminals, port authorities, forwarders, cargo owners. So, yes, um, I live here, I spend most of my days here, but the majority of my work actually takes place outside of Denmark. Yeah, I figured that, like, as a consultant, must be true.
1: Nowadays you can spread your uh, opinion pieces over blogs and social media, such as LinkedIn. Uh, where people also engage in conversations. Um, Please tell us about your uh, decision to publish a book, like a physical book, and um, does it serve as a compilation of earlier articles?
0: And did it come together from a collaboration with other people? The book has existed in my head for probably the better part of a year and a half. And in that sense, it is an amalgamation of various types of work and analysis I've been doing for the last year and a half. I think I actually settled on the title and that I wanted to do a book about a year and a half ago, and it should be Line of Shipping 2025. Not that 25 is a specific year, but more a matter of putting a marker out where there is sufficient time for slow changes to actually take effect. And a lot of the book does circle around a range of different topics. Anybody who reads the book will also find that none of the topics I deal with are standalone in the all right. They're all intertwined. Mm -hmm. And for me, the book is a much better format to then sit down and relax and contemplate a bit about what is the long-term picture. I use LinkedIn a lot. Uh, I publish various smaller pieces of analysis every single week as well through See Until Sunday Spotlight. But that is always very narrow on one specific topic and doesn't allow for this holistic view of where the industry is going. No. And the, the
1: collaboration aspects, or are there particular people that may need to be mentioned uh, in, in the coming together of this book?
0: Um, I, I wouldn't mention individuals as such. This is more a result of the discussions with a large number of individuals I've had over time, both on individual topics, where we sat one on one in coffee shops like this and discussed what is going to happen sometimes with clients, sometimes with suppliers, so it would be difficult to single out any individual any few individuals without then making that a very, very long list indeed yeah. but of course, something like this doesn 't just happen in isolation out of mm-hmm. my own head it 's also a result of a lot of discussions over this period yeah in, in like in i t terms they talk
1: about uh, a node in a network, like somehow you are like the node in, in a larger network that chose to like document it as a
0: book. No. Yes, you can say the inspiration is somewhat akin, not completely, but somewhat akin to a book I published back in 2014 on the cultural changes in Maersk at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that book came about because, well given my own background in Moscow, I have a large network there, And after I left Musk, I constantly ran into people where the topic of discussion was always what happened. Everybody knew something material had changed, but nobody could write, put it into a full frame of context, what had happened and why. So I decided to do it back then to put everything into context. To some degree, this book is kind of the same. When I talk to people, they all have small pieces of the puzzle, what is changing and why, depending on their perspective. And once more, it's a matter of trying to put this into an overall framework so we can understand this huge change that is coming. But it's it's a big change that doesn't happen overnight. It sort of sneaks up on you, and therefore it can be difficult to see the full picture. Before we get to what happened,
1: there's the opening chapter where you discuss um, the term disruption and how that is a broader trend occurring in society at large. Um, the premise of your book, I find, is that shipping lines have the opportunity to drive the transformation themselves. Can you maybe elaborate on that aspect, that they can
0: still do it themselves? Yes, you could say this came out of, um, after having heard about disruption for quite a while, I was beginning to become slightly tired, not only of the word but of its particularly misuse in this industry. Not that this industry is immune and it will change, but the time scale over which changes can happen in this industry is very different. Uh, I've heard a lot of, uh, maybe a different place to take it, is I've heard a lot of false analogies uh, on disruption. Like for example, well look at what happened to Kodak, it could happen to shipping. Well, given that we move physical products that will remain physical, You're not going to put that into software, for example. Yes, we can argue whether things will grow faster or slower, but, well, the physical premise will remain. Of course, what can change is the business models under which that happens. And that brings us to the second part, why at least the shipping lines have a chance to do it themselves. And that brings to another false analogy I heard a lot in terms of, well, who is the next Uber of shipping? Well, if you talk shipping in terms of overland transportation and vans, fine, I can see that there are already companies doing that. But when you talk about container shipping on the deep sea, last time I checked, you do not have many people that have their own container ships that they're not using in their spare time. Last time I checked, you do not have many people that have their own container ships that they're not using in their spare time. So the vast majority of assets are actually owned and controlled by a relatively limited number of companies. And there is no way for a disruptor to come in and take material ownership of a large part of the hardware overnight. Over five to ten years, yes, potentially somebody could build it up, but that means that the ball is actually in the shipping lines, court. they have the opportunity to do so. Whether they will then take that opportunity is, of course, up for discussion. My own personal belief is some of them will do this and they will drive this, I call it transformation deliberately and not the word disruption. And there will be some that realize too late what is changing and they quite simply will not be here in 2025. Okay. Next uh, chapter, actually, you uh,
1: you take the time to um, make the difference between tactical and strategic Challenges, or as you call it, urgent on the one side and important on the other. Can you perhaps give an example of each, of an urgent one, or is is it kind of does it overlap? So
0: it, it does overlap to some degree. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, as you might already have uh, found out, I love analogies, uh, and, and I think a good analogy here is obviously if you have a huge warehouse and there's a fire in the corner, you don't put out the fire. Now. If this is the 8th time in a week you have a small fire in the warehouse, do you need to go and put that fire out now? Of course you do, but you might have a more urgent question in terms of finding out why does this keep reoccurring, something else need to change. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't put out the fire right here now, but you need to then devote resources to both, Mm -hmm. and not just go home and sleep once the 8th fire is put out. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing here, the shipping lines clearly have an urgent problem, in as they were heavily loss-making in 2016, that is clearly unsustainable. Something needs to be done about that. That cannot wait on a five to ten year scale. But at the same time, you need to start working on some much more fundamental changes. And some of the fundamental changes are, for example, a switch to more process management orientation in business models. That is something that takes many, many years to implement and do well. but that doesn't mean we should do process management and forget about the losses. Clearly, we need to deal with the losses. You have to do both at the same time, and that's the difficult part here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an example, actually, you give in the book about outsourcing a key department in your organization to a country where there's lower uh, cost in, in, in employing people. But then you say, well, maybe that's a fast solution. On the other hand, you have to think of the long-term option of
0: automating it yes Uh, you say the way i look at it is and that's actually interesting because it goes beyond just the world of shipping in my view when you outsource something to typically you would outsource it to say service centers in india that is because you are not actually doing anything with your underlying work processes at all you're just moving it to a place where labor is cheaper but you're still doing more or less the same thing If you were actually able to fundamentally change it, you are also fundamentally able to automate it. And that's what I believe is going to change over time. All of the shipping lines went through this outsourcing wave during the first decade of the 2000s, which is why we now have tens of thousands of people in service centers doing, for example, documentation or customer service or a whole range of things. As the carriers get their processes under control. Then get the IT systems under control, we will see tens of thousands of these service center jobs literally disappear. Mm-hmm.
1: You are listening to the ETAP podcast. In the second part of this podcast, Lars Jensen and I are discussing oversupply, price wars, and making forecasts for the future of the liner shipping business in 2025. On page 19 you write, and I quote, in the 25 years from 1980 to 2005, global container shipping grew 3% faster than global demand every year. My question may be simple and naive, but I was honestly wondering, is there an organization that functions as a form of watchdog over the entire sector, warning about threats
0: to the sector in general? It's a good question. The answer is there is not, but there was. Um, If you go back a number of decades, uh, it was not unusual for many trade lanes. In, In a few trade lanes, you still have it. You have what's called conferences, which is basically where carriers have an exemption from the antitrust laws and are allowed to discuss, for example, how do we inject capacity into trades in order to avoid the whole market's being destabilized. Uh, in the EU, those uh, exemptions were abolished back in 2008, so there is nothing like that in the EU anymore. Because of antitrust, right? Like- yes, it's because of antitrust. But then, and here's the interesting part, I've been discussing this also with a number of shippers uh, basically over the last 10 years, when they keep saying, oh my god, the carriers used to be able to operate as a cartel, good thing we got rid of the antitrust. Well. Look at those 25 years, even though they were allowed to talk about these things, that did not curb them from doing so. Mm -hmm. And if you go back slightly before that, you had trade lanes where legally you were allowed to have a cartel, legally you were allowed to fix prices, and where all shipping lines were members of the cartels, and yet you still had vicious, devastating price wars where everybody lost. I usually say that this industry, even when they're allowed to collude, are inept at doing so. We arrive now at, at, I think, your
1: other daring hypothesis in the book, uh, which is saying, let's look at the sector in terms of an industry life cycle. You claim that after its first phase of, of birth and then a second phase of growth, it now needs to strategize for its third, more steady phase of maturity. Yes. I think what I want to ask is how do you, as a consultant, manage to illustrate this particular point to your
0: clients? Increasingly, it's relatively easy to get that point across to my clients. Uh, when I first. Uh, this is actually something that I've been out saying for the past five years or so that we're entering this space. Initially, it was hard because initially when I first came out with this, it was very shortly after the financial crisis and everybody said, oh no, no, you can't look at the numbers now. And the financial crisis loomed large in their minds. In my view, the financial crisis was just a distraction that shielded us from the the fundamental changes. In my view, the financial crisis was just a distraction that shielded us from the fundamental changes. And even more interesting, Back when I was working in Line, and now we are all the way back in, that was 2004-05, where I sat down together with one of my analysts at the time, and we simply said, if we are on a path of rapid growth, which we were at the time, surely this cannot continue forever. Like everything else, it sort of has this S-shape, where it grows rapidly suddenly, and then growth tapers off to a more steady state. So we tried to look at the data available to us at the time, and said, well, can we model where on this S curve are we, and when does it flatten out? And back then we said, fine, we're actually well on our way, and this is going to flatten out around 2010, which, in retrospect, turned out to be fairly much spot on in terms of what actually happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's. You just uh, you research it, and then uh, it becomes clearer. A, a lot of it very often is about finding the numbers, and sometimes, you don't like what you find in the numbers and people tend not to believe it and I spent many years working on doing forecasts first at Marsline and then for other clients and sometimes I provoke them by saying what do you think is the most important thing in a forecast and instinctively everybody answers the same thing, accuracy my take on it is, accuracy is not the most important thing in a forecast there's one thing that is much more important and that is acceptability if somebody gives you a forecast it doesn't matter it's accurate if he doesn't accept it then it does not play a role in his decision making process oh, yeah. the forecast was accurate but it has zero impact on the other hand if i have a forecast that might be slightly less accurate but the receiver takes it under advisement then you can pull, directions, uh, pull decisions in the right direction and therefore an acceptable forecast will have more impact than an accurate one now ideally you would like it to be both acceptable and accurate at the same time but you can't always get everything you want and therefore when you deal with forecasting you actually need to spend as much time finding out how can i convince the receiver of this forecast that he should actually place any credibility on it because otherwise it's for naught mm-hmm. so it's it's
1: it's a choice of words really or or in in a form of storytelling maybe?
0: It, there, there's definitely an element of storytelling because if you only speak with numbers and not in storytelling you will find that people are quite unwilling to listen. And, and, and then you're actually at the heart of something that's also what I tried to do deliberately in the book. It's a book about what will happen in markets for 2025, but as you've probably also seen, there's almost no numbers in it at all. Because to me, positioning and changing the industry and the companies within that first step is not about understanding the numbers up to 2025, it's about fundamentally understanding what changes in the industry and then, secondary to that, then we start putting the numbers on because if you do a strategy in any line of shipping company then of course you will want to back it down and say, well what does this mean, how many ships do we need, what's our pricing model and so on and so forth, and clearly those details need to be on but that will have to be step two, you need the fundamental understanding first. No, no. Okay, so
1: this this story you're, you're, uh, you're writing, you're delivering you have a tour coming up of sorts I, I saw on your website you have a few dates ahead
0: Yeah, uh, there's a number of different conferences I mean the book was launched over at the Trans-Pacific Maritime Conference in California a week ago which is a good place to launch it because it's the largest container shipping event uh, that there is every year but then there's a range of other major container shipping conferences that i'll be going out to and also presenting these thoughts here over the spring i will be sure to add these to the podcast you can find the links
1: um, below thank you lars for uh, this conversation my pleasure thank you for listening to this first episode of the etap podcast feel free to comment on the episode on our soundcloud or visit facebook.com slash etap podcast those are three p's For more information and a full transcript of the conversation, go to etappodcast.blogspot.com. Be sure to tune in next time and have a good day.